It's another episode of Movies You Should Love with Lauren and Scott. Hi, this is Lauren, and welcome to yet another episode of Movies You Should Love. Uh, like I said, I'm Lauren. I'm here with my whatever he is, Scott. Erstwhile companion, Scott. Erstwhile companion. <laughs> uh, anyhow, yeah, uh, and we are here. We are talking about the number one movie on AFI's top 100 films of all time list. Citizen and number Kane. two on the BFI top 100 list. Yes. I don't, anyhow, there you go. Um, it's get into that later. Yeah, it's it's in tops in lists all over the place. Basically, it's been uh-huh. like the number one movie since like I, I was reading for like nineteen sixty two the first time so they really started making these lists. I mean, this has been the number one film of like all time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, you know, even when it gets bumped, it's usually you know it's like this and like Vertigo or something like right. that. Oh, exactly. You know, it's it's um, yeah. Uh, so uh, did we actually say the title of the movie? Citizen Kane. If we okay. didn't, we're talking about Citizen Kane. Oh no! <laughs> oh, I watched Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind last night. <laughs> I did not prepare. I'm sorry, guys. Uh, all right. So uh, just to catch everybody up, what we do here? This is movies you should love, and we're going to look obviously today it's Citizen Kane, but we're looking at movies you should love, or that people think you should love, and we're going to kind of pick them apart, figure out what makes them tick and why people respect them or love them or or whatever they do with them. Um, And uh, so we're taking on I mean, this is we're, we're we're pulling out the big guns today. This is Citizen Kane. This is kind of this is why we do this because this is like the movie to do it with. Yeah. Um, so, if you want to tell us what you think about Citizen Kane, you can do it on our Facebook page, facebook.com/slash movies you should, on our Twitter at movies you should, or on our website at movies you should love dot com. Mm-hmm. Um, anyhow, so yeah, uh, Citizen Kane, nineteen forty one. Yep. film directed Co- by Orson Welles and co-written and starring Orson Welles. That's right. Um you know, Orson Welles had uh. been a huge um success back in New York doing uh stage productions and yeah. and even more so radio productions. He was, you know, He's War like, of the Worlds and mm-hmm. and the 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 radio theater that that he did. Um it was, you know, massive for the time such a fascinating uh character to read about um after i watched the movie last night i also watched the documentary that was on the second dvd about the box set of uh, battle for citizen kane and it really kind of got into some of orson's uh past and his history and i mean this is a guy who was really seen as a child prodigy this is somebody who was writing and <laughs> just mm-hmm. involved in this really in- innovative things on stage in new york um, yeah, like, doing, doing Shakespeare, doing a, like doing a really fascinating Caesar, doing Othello and Hamlet, and all of these yeah. things. He he reminds me in a way of like the way people treated Mozart, you know, kind yeah. of that same like you know child prodigy getting to go and do yeah. all this amazing he, stuff that nobody being, gets to do. Yeah, he was like being published like at six or at eight and being lauded at ten and. Um, I mean, and you could say you know, that that might uh, lead to some of the hubris that we see later in his life, um, but it's just, it's just fascinating because it, it leads to this moment that just never happens. You know, he moves out to Hollywood, and RKO says, "Here's half a million dollars. Do whatever you want." <laughs> you know, they just, and this is somebody who had never made a film to this point. This was his first movie, and um, 
he's just given complete creative freedom to do whatever he wants and he has his people and they you know his the, you know, i love that at the at the end of the film you know the fact that these are all all the actors in the movie were also new to film and they're like oh these are all from the theater and we like to introduce them to you now it kind of felt like a stage call at the end of mm-hmm. a of a play uh, but it's just, it's just fascinating because you know some of these people you've come to know you know after uh, Citizen Kane, but for a lot of people, this was maybe the first time they were seeing any of these actors or any of the any of their faces. They might have known Orson Welles' voice, but they might not have ever seen him. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's it definitely gave him a scale um, of of viewership that he never had really had. Um, you know, even with radio, he had he had the scale, but he didn't have the the facial recognition and the and just, and the image. Necessarily. It's so hard to imagine something like that happening today. It seems like today there'd be at least like, well, you're going to have to at least cast this person. Or if you want to be in an Orson, you also need to star opposite this actress so that we can get people to see the, see it in the theater. But these are just a huge collection of unknowns. Yeah, you know, it's... I mean, the, the closest thing I can compare it to in film is like Charlie Chaplin or something. Mm-hmm. You know, when... when you know, he was kind of both the writer, the director, the producer, you know, everything on his films, the actor. Um, you know, but I mean, that was back way early on in, in the film industry. And it, Yeah, the, more recently, it did remind me a little bit. I mean, this is different, but um, a couple of years ago, uh, Peter Jackson was going to produce a Halo movie uh, with Neil Blomkamp. And then when that movie kind of fell through, Peter Jackson basically, basically gave the director, Neil Blomkamp, like, two or three million dollars not a whole lot and say go make something you know we've worked together for all these years this movie's not happening go make something and so he went and made district nine with again a lot of kind of unknown people but Mm -hmm. that's kind of different because he had proven you know to peter jackson and to different people in the you know in this in the in the studio system that he could make a good looking movie or an interesting movie but yeah it just it doesn't happen anymore yeah, and I mean it. It didn't happen then. But, I mean, this is right. this is truly a a one time <laughs> impossible sort of thing. You know, it it it, it hasn't <laughs> happened, and it probably and won't he, ever again. He made Citizen Kane. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not like he made some little New York based comedy. He made Citizen Kane. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's it's humbling. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's let's talk about the movie. I mean, you yeah. know, or, uh, Orson Welles himself. I mean, we could we could probably fill a podcast just talking about him and his history and stuff if we had actually researched it more. Um, <laughs> but no, I, the movie itself, you know, the the script is kind of based on the life of William Randolph Hearst, mm-hmm. um, who he was. You know, if you think about um, today, you have your 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 kind of media moguls, your uh, Murdochs, and and you know people right. like that. Hearst was kind of that, but multiplied to a faction of like ten. Yeah, he was born into wealth, and I mean, it's like in the you guys really should watch the battle uh, battle over Citizen Kane documentary. It's almost kind of disgusting the way they talk about Hearst's childhood when he, when he wanted ice cream, his father would flip him a twenty. Uh, a $20 gold coin. You know, this is like in the 1800s. You're like, that's insane. Yeah. I don't know if that was hyperbole, but holy cow. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, this was a guy who, you know, kind of single-handedly um, 
engineered some wars and yeah, that's what know, I was saying. Getting Kingdom America into wars and, and defining and redefining uh, print media in a way that we're still kind of living in his shadow in a way that most people probably don't see or know. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's like the the yellow journalism that kind of scandalous. Well, if we say this, who's going to actually argue with us, or how can they argue with us, or yeah, that that line in the movie, you know, you send the poetry, and I'll I'll make the war for you, or however he said it. That's almost verbatim, a telegraph conversation that uh, Hearst had with one of his men in Cuba. Um, except it was about pictures and not prose, but I mean, it's essentially the same thing. Like he he kind of crafted a war so they could sell newspapers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I mean, so I mean, William Randolph Hearst, larger than life character. I mean, you know, just a. a Again, an amazing character as well that we could probably spend an entire podcast, podcast just talking about him. <laughs> yeah, um, there's there's a great book about him um, that you. Anyhow, it, it doesn't matter. There's watch the documentary at a, at, at a bare minimum. The War Over Citizen it, it, Kane. It, it, it's a great introduction. Yeah. Um, so and so he's also being as big as he is, and that kind of makes him ripe for. Uh, ridicule, possibly, or examination. Um, I would dare say Orson Welles was not a fan of him when you look at the content of this film. Um, because this movie basically is about a... I mean, it kind of starts off as a... I mean, it's it's told in flashback, but if you kind of piece it together, basically it's he sees this Kane character as this young, idealistic man who possibly is has a little bit too much hubris for his own good who starts off with this newspaper and wants to take down the big guys and defend the little people. And that leads to a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, contention and battles with, with the upper class and all these things. And by the end of the, by the end of his life, he's just this cantankerous old man who nobody really seems to like anymore. He's lost his friends, lost his loves, and he dies alone, unhappy and, you know, wanting to reclaim his youth. And it's kind of sad. And, miserable as far as a view on a human being goes yeah it's um yeah i I would say that's a very good summary of the movie so um (laughs) (laughs) um you know that said uh, it is kind of a movie where there's there is a lot of depth to the characters in it i would say um because you know i mean that is his his arc um you know which is very reminiscent of um you know more recent movies like there will be blood or, or you know some things like that um but at the same time it's it's the sort of movie that never quite answers the questions that it raises about kane right. um because it this whole movie is is told through kind of this framing mechanism of um a reporter kind of digging for information right and and so the movie is not from Kane's perspective. You never right. actually get to know necessarily the real Kane. What you get to know yeah. is is different people's impressions of him. The, the, yeah, different people's perspectives on him. Um, it's it's very interesting because the way the movie is told um, is almost every scene in this movie is witnessed by someone, and that witness kind of is in the foreground, bottom right of the of the frame, kind right. of, and they are witnessing a scene, and so every moment in this movie is not really you don't know if it's necessarily the truth or not it's it's a certain person's perspective on who kane was at that time which is actually really brilliant because that is almost the whole point of the film that Mm -hmm. you really can't ever know a person and even at the end of it because the whole search is like what does rosebud mean that was Mm -hmm. his dying word 
what does it mean? And they ask him, they ask the reporter, what does it mean? He goes, it probably doesn't matter. You can't sum up one person in one word. How mm -hmm. can you know a person? And yet at the end, they almost do try to sum up him up in one word. And it's this fascinating paradox. And it's this interesting, mm -hmm. like, it's all, it's all perspective. You, can you ever actually know a person? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think that's really the ultimate thing that this movie is trying to say is is that you know what can you know about a, a, a another human what can you know about a man can you know his inner motives or his you know all we can all we can really know are his actions mm -hmm. you know and so that's kind of almost you know Cain is defined by the way he treated people the way he mm -hmm. approached life and that is the thing that we can see we have no idea what his inner monologue is we don't know why he treated people the way he did we don't know why he married the president's daughter. That happens off screen. He just comes back going, oh, by the way, getting married, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. So we really don't have glimpses into that. What we do know is he married her and then kind of neglected her to run the newspaper. Yeah. Because that's what she says. <laughs> you know, it's it's fascinating. Yeah. And, uh, and to me, that's... Uh, it's probably, I think for Scott, it's probably the thing that, that bugs him the most about this movie, and it's probably the thing that I love the most about this movie. Well, that, yeah, we can take a moment here. Um, <laughs> you just brought up There Will Be Blood, which mm -hmm. is another phenomenal movie that I don't like. Yes. Um, because at, for me, I have a really hard time with characters that I don't like. It's the reason I don't really like Gone with the Wind either, is because I have such a hard time with... If I have to spend time with characters that I don't like, I don't enjoy myself. And I, I want, you know... And so with this movie, that's been my, one of my biggest problems with this movie um, forever, ever since the first time I saw it, is that I'm really charmed by the young citizen Kane, the young Charles Foster Kane, when he has the newspaper and he says, I'm going to fight for these people. I'm going to do this thing because no one else will. I'm like, yes, let's do this. And that's the movie I want Citizen Kane to be. Even if you still explore some of the hubris, you still explore his eventual downfall. That's kind of the movie I want because I like that character. But so so quickly, the movie moves into this character who is actually just unlikable. There's nothing left really to like about him. And it's because it's being told from the perspective of other people who he mistreated. And so you don't get that inner monologue. You, you're held at arm's length and all you're given are these really negative uh, reflections of the, of the man. And so it's like when you have that, when you have somebody like um i forget his name the guy who likes milkshakes and there will be blood um you just go i don't like this guy i want him to fail i don't care if he fails because he's a jerk <laughs> you know the, i just i don't you know i have a really hard time with that um that being said i like flawed characters i like i like walter white you know but yet i'm rooting for him because i understand him you know when i watch breaking bad um but yeah, I do have a hard time with movies with completely unlikable characters as their main protagonists because I have a hard time rooting for that. <laughs> I don't know. Mm -hmm. It's it, there's, a, there's a cognitive dissonance, I guess, that takes place, and it just kind of makes me not enjoy the film. Yeah. See, and whereas for me, I I think I don't find him unlikable is kind of maybe my my biggest thing is is that um, despite all of his flaws, I still. I, I still I I don't know I kind of can look at him in a in a slightly different angle where it's kind of like even though he's making these choices and and everything it all is kind of stemming from a very certain place where he's 
he has a certain set of things that he's trying to accomplish mm-hmm. and he's he's a character who doesn't necessarily know despite all of his advantages in life mm-hmm. he he's still a a flawed person who doesn't know how to achieve what he is truly after mm-hmm. and so everything for me stems from this pursuit that he seems to have that he that he can't quite figure out. It's kind of it's kind of this lacking quality in his life that I think he's always after mm-hmm. and he doesn't know how to find it. Yeah. And to me and to me that's such an interesting character thing mm-hmm. that he's always you know, always pushing in these directions and and I don't know. I I can I can kind yeah. of connect with him as a character in a in a weird way. No, and so I, yeah. The character he's intriguing, and I, mm-hmm. I I do like there's parts of there's part I want to know more, but I don't like spending time with him. And I felt like if if, if the movie had a if we were inside his mind a little bit more, mm-hmm. I might like him more. But I just don't. There comes a point. Um, what oh, I, I figured it out last night. I was watching. I go, this is the point right here where I stop caring about the character. Um, oh, what it, it's. Um, I've, I've lost it. I had a very specific scene in mind, and I think I wrote it down somewhere. But um, it's it's after the, it. It's basically probably once he starts really putting on some of the old age makeup and is really kind of a an, an more elderly character. I don't remember. I can't remember. It's it's escaped me. I'll try to find it. But there, there definitely comes this point in the film where I just switch off, and I just don't care about him. And I'm just watching the film to try to take it in and understand the process because um and we can get off the character here uh if you'd like because this movie really is a remarkable remarkable film whether or not i actually care for it yeah uh no i mean this movie um uh i was listening to uh i'd never actually sat down and and watched the roger ebert commentary which i would also highly recommend for this movie Mm -hmm. if you know get the dvd or blu-ray or whatever and and watch it you know after you've watched it on your own uh, also watch it with the roger ebert commentary um because he has some really interesting insight to the movie Mm -hmm. um but one of the things that he said about this was that um you know this is Above all, it is a huge special effects movie. Um, you know, there's, and, and it's really true. This is a movie that that really pioneered so many things: camera techniques and special effects, and uh, you know, uh, just so many different things: uh, music and sound design, um, uh, all you know, s- different types of storytelling elements. It's it's a very um, you know, today we would call it a you know a pretty normal sort of movie, but at the time it wasn't just an advanced movie. It literally broke all of the rules that had been ridden up till that point. Right. And uh, you know, it's it's a special effects movie, like he was saying. It's there are probably more effect shots in this movie than there are in the original Star Wars. Um, That's you know? astounding because the, the only ones that you might think of when you watch it are maybe the old age makeup. Mm-hmm. And you assume there's some matte paintings, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, tell you were telling me before the podcast about a very simple looking scene that's actually, um, yeah, yeah. So um, the the scene uh, it's fairly early on in the in the movie. It's right after all the newsreels and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a scene where um, K 
Kane as a boy is playing in the snow and he's throwing snowballs around and <laughs> just you know just playing in the snow. And um, the camera pulls back and we go inside the house through a window. And um, through that window, we see um, his mom and his dad and this and this other gentleman kind of talking. And the camera just keeps pulling back. Um, and this whole time, you see Kane outside the window playing. And you mm-hmm. pull all the way back to this table where, where the adults sit down and have a whole conversation. Um, and then... Just, yeah. Yeah. It's this, it's this very it's deep shot. Very deep shot. Which, the whole deep focus, we can get into that in a little bit. Mm-hmm. But... Um, because that in itself is is kind of a pioneering sort of Absolutely. camera effect, but aside from from the deep focus, which is across this whole movie, this this specific shot, which is a really simple, you know, conversation. It's a long conversational piece, but um, it doesn't really seem like there's much interesting going on in it. No, it just you, you just you know, all you would do is put a camera on a jib and pull it through the window and yeah, walk yeah. it off. Um, but until you realize that. Um, things like the table in the shot were actually in the way of the camera. So the table right. in this shot is a effect. They, the, the table actually split into two pieces, and the camera went through the table, mm-hmm. and then they assembled the table back together. Like over the dolly track. Over the dolly track <laughs> before the camera showed it. Um, you know, so there's these actors who are having to deal, you know, doing this very serious scene, you know, putting in these amazing performances. There's a camera sliding through the shot, and there's like stagehands running out and like assembling a table for them to come sit down. Dear, you know, it's a very, it's a very effects sort of driven shot, and that you don't even think about. And I think it's, I think it's the kind of idea that. Nobody in the studio, and nobody coming from a film background would have had. But considering that Orson's coming with it from a theatrical standpoint, it makes a lot of sense to me. It's like, and even the actors being able to handle that makes a lot of sense because there's so much chaos on a theatrical stage. Or when you're backstage, you have stage hands running around and dressing you while you are about to go back out on stage. Or you're sit, you're on stage and you have stage hands running around and assembling things around you, and it's. Mm-hmm. But when you watch the film, you don't see it, and it's so astounding. Like, to me, I was—I didn't even think about that part of it. I was just marveling at the fact that that little boy was outside that window, and I could see him through the entire scene. And it's really just—it to me, that's that was the cool part of it. But it, mm-hmm. it's really cool. <laughs> yeah, and and the thing is, is it's almost every shot in the movie has something like that in mm-hmm. it um, that you just don't think of, and yet. There it is. And so, um, like, there was there was one shot, I and mean, this is this is completely different. But one of the early shots, like after the uh, after the newsreel, it, like the man he goes and he's he, he's talking to the secretary, and the way the stage or the the set is lit, mm-hmm. both Kelly and I thought it was like this really small flat uh, soundstage. But then the camera moves on and follows her through this door into this really big room, and you go, oh. Never mind. <laughs> and it's just these little tricks that kind of happen. These little moments in the film kind of will kind of surprise you, especially considering this is a 1940s black and white film. There's some camera movements and some very early. Um, there's there's one movement in particular that uh, it feels like a very early David Fincher shot to me, which is you know that you're outside this hotel and the camera actually goes through the sign and then it goes up to a window and since. You know, we don't have computer animation at this point. It goes to the window and it does this cool dissolve through the window into the scene. But the, the camera movement kind of stays the same and it goes down to the mm-hmm. table where this girl is sitting. And it's 
it's just it's phenomenal and it's like you're, it's just wonderful to watch and you kind of go how did they do that that's really cool and i'm assuming the sign was a breakaway sign in the same way that the table was because there's no way they could have gotten that camera through that you know yeah exactly um you know there's there's even um you know something like uh, there's there's a really famous shot where um you know the the, the girl the uh, this is singing and the camera oh, yeah. uh, tilts up you know moves up and ends up in the rafters with these two uh, stagehands who are like holding their noses because she's doing so badly <laughs> right um, you know that whole sequence is you know this very interesting combination of miniatures and in camera camera effects and you know multi plate exposures and, and things where you know part of the uh, you know, there's there's a wipe part way during the camera move where you move into a miniature and you're, you know, using the miniature as part of the uh, the stage mm-hmm. uh, dressing, and then like there's another wipe, and you're back into reality and you're looking at these you know real life stage hands and you know mm-hmm. it's 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 amazing it's it's stuff that is almost seamless you can kind of see it if you know to look for it at this right. point, but you kind of have to know to look for it and even. You know, some of it, it's just it's amazing. Some of it works so much better than effects do today, despite the huge budget effects have today. And I, I think part of it is helped by the black and white. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, I think it's, I think that hides some of it because there was even a couple times later in the film with some of the the makeup. I started wondering, I wondered how they, the character actually looked on set because mm-hmm. it's a black and white film. So I kind of was like, I bet they could hide some of that. That he might not at all look. Mm-hmm. convincing as a as a photorealistic in color um mm-hmm. person but yeah. it it works other than one fake mustache i thought was a little yeah a little questionable yeah I, <laughs> I i would have to say that you know the makeup i think is a huge achievement in this film oh um, yeah considering you know, that he was you know basically he's out of makeup for the newspaper scenes at the very beginning when he's mm-hmm. the young 25 year old uh kane that's how orson welles looked at the time but he spends the majority of the film like as old man Kane, and it's pretty remarkable. Yeah, and uh, also I would say a testament to Wells um, to his acting ability. You know, if mm-hmm. nothing else, if you count nothing else about this movie, this movie is a huge tour de force of oh, yeah. Orson Welles' acting ability. I mean, he <laughs> is riveting any time yeah. he is on screen in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't matter how many layers of, of makeup he has making him look old. He is always riveting. And so believable, especially um, that opening uh, newsreel. It's it's mm-hmm. a little long for me. There's a, there's a point in it where I kind of want them to wrap it up a little bit faster. But mm-hmm. when they're showing some of the interview sequences, it's like it just it feels like a real newsreel of that time. Like when the news reporters are interviewing him about having returned to America, it's like he just seems like a man from the the 30s who would be caught in you know who's being interviewed. The what his mannerisms, the it feels more uh, naturalistic mm-hmm. than you often see in movies from this time period, and it's really cool to see that. I really yeah. enjoyed that. Yeah, absolutely. Um... You know, I, there, there's so many things that we can talk about with the effects in here. Um, I mean, it's just, you know, and the camera techniques. You know, this deep focus thing is is a huge mm-hmm. element that, um, you know, Orson Welles actually shares a title card with his cinematographer mm-hmm. in this movie because um, he actually considered the cinematographer to be such a collaborator on this film. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, so much of this movie is shot in this thing where basically everything in the frame is in focus. Yeah. And and it's brilliant because what it does is it allows Wells as the director to then basically allow you as the audience to decide where you're looking. Mm-hmm. Almost like in a stage play again. You know, mm-hmm. when you're in a stage play you don't have a specific direction that you're focused and you can look anywhere you want to on the mm-hmm. stage. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of happens in this film again. And yet he very carefully crafts every sequence so that, you know, someone is looking at Kane in the way that he wants you them to, so that you're always focused in the frame where Wells wants you to be looking. Mm-hmm. You know, you could look anywhere else that you want to. It's it's all there. Mm-hmm. And you know, you can pause at any moment and kind of examine the scene or whatever, but there's always this direction within the frame that really, you know, focuses you in on exactly the emotions and the the, the characterizations that Wells wants you to, to see. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's a huge collaboration um, between the cinematographer and the director in this movie. Um, so it's, it's, it's a very cool... Um, sort of thing not for every movie but definitely in this movie it mm-hmm. works you know and then it also makes any time that there is depth of field or um you know these extreme close-ups or that kind of thing like it really it really puts a lot of punch behind them because you're so not used to it in this movie and then suddenly you'll get this really powerful shot of a close-up that just you know drives the power of that character or the you know whatever whatever the feeling of that moment is home Mm -hmm. Um, definitely um i think some who somebody posted it you i forget what it is um but basically what's so fascinating about uh citizen kane is that it, it basically combined everything that was currently available to the artist and mm-hmm. brought it together in this really um, really well crafted film and so it's like it used every all the technologies and some that people weren't even really thinking about a whole lot or real well up to this point the use of music, the use of sound design in this film also um, was kind of leaps and bounds ahead of everything else that was being released mm-hmm. up to this point. Well, yeah, uh, you know, Orson Welles, he was coming from his radio background, so everything he had done, you know, uh, on radio was entirely audio. You right. know, he, he understood the power of sound as a storytelling technique. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, this is the kind of movie where he uses, you know, um, echo chambers. Uh, there's, the, like, the sequence you were talking about where they walk into the huge room with the secretary. Mm-hmm. You know, part of that is that um, you know, it's it's actually not that big of a set. It's you know just a small room with another room with a little thing in it. But he adds this echo chamber to people's voices, and there's these great booming footsteps. You know, that as they're walking, and when you open a door, it makes like the sound yeah. kind of, and and you know everything is loud. And so even though the set is kind of okay, um, there's this element to the sound design here that sells this room as a huge room. Right. Um, you know, this is kind of used all over this film. There's there's so many things in here that really only have, like, six actors on stage, <laughs> and yet the way they've shot it, they maybe gave you one framing shot with, like, a matte painting or something, like uh, his his political speech, right. for instance. Right, yeah, it's gonna... Um, you know, this whole thing happens, you know, you see, like, six people on stage and him talking, basically. And yeah. then you cut to, like, two people in the audience, too. And you had maybe two framing shots, but there's this use of sound. Right. And, you know, keeping, you know, adding loud applause that comes from, you know, thousands of people. Yeah. Even though they weren't there. You know, this is stuff that wasn't... 
I mean, now we just kind of think like, well, of course that's what you would do. Obviously, yeah. that's what you would do. Yeah. But in 1941, that's not what you would do. Yeah. Exactly. Um, <laughs> if you wanted that huge rally, you had to fill a stadium so you could film a huge rally. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so that happens all over this movie. And so there's this epic sense of scale where there's really it's kind of like radio mm-hmm. radio was able to create these epic senses mm-hmm. of scale and it was all like you know six guys and a sound effects dude on a stage in front of an audience and um yeah it's it's you know he definitely brought these experiences to this film from outside of hollywood and you know really changed the language of what was going on in film and i i think that more than anything is why this movie is considered so amazing and, and yeah. the number one because usually these lists are compiled by people who are film people yeah and this movie is probably one of the greatest changes in cinema mm-hmm. and and it's an all-around well-crafted sort of film not well but i mean exceptionally crafted yeah. sort of film and every element of the crafting of it whether it's you know challenging the establishment of william randolph hearst in the mm-hmm. script writing to challenging you know the visual storytelling or the audio storytelling or, you know, the structure of story, you know, whatever it is, uh, you know, the, the acting quality, you know, everything about this movie flipped the industry on its head a little bit. Yeah. And I think, and I think that and it successfully flipped it on its head, mm-hmm. not just like, Oh, that's a failure. This was, this was something that right. has stood the test of time. And all of these elements have now integrated so completely into our language of film. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think that more than anything is why it's on these top 100 lists as the, as the number one movie. Um, and I, I would, I would, I want to warn people or whatever. I think this is definitely a movie that you will love or should love. If you are a avid connoisseur of film or if you're a film student or if you're someone who's out there making films this is a movie that you need to uh go back to you need to rewatch. you need to ingest this film um but for the lay person for the person for the the casual moviegoer i don't know if this is a very enjoyable film on on other certain levels for some people you might absolutely adore it and that's totally cool but i think they're there are some there are some kind of barriers to getting into this film and enjoying it. Um, the fact that, you know, there's like this kind of it's almost is it twenty minutes long at the beginning, like the the newsreel footage, it is it feels uh, it, it's it's very long. It's very long. Yeah, you know, like this really long kind of th- um, newsreel that kind of introduces you to Kane and then the whole rest of the film is kind of it's a it's a fictitious character, but it's it's basically told in the same way that we were talking about Forrest Gump how it was kind of told in this, you take a fictitious character, but tell it as if it's a real biography of a real person. Um, it It's not the most enjoyable film if you're really just sitting down wanting a a fun movie to watch or it's raining outside, let's go watch a movie. Yeah. Citizen Kane isn't necessarily a movie that I would recommend to all people. But it's... it's in, go ahead. Yeah, well, I was just going to say, it's definitely a sort of movie... I think you will enjoy it more the more you try to learn about it outside yeah. of the context of the yeah. movie itself. You know, watching documentaries about it, you know, listening to commentary, listening to our podcast, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's books to be read about it. There's, you know, there's all kinds of things. I think each of those sorts of things 
will enhance your enjoyment of it because it's it's an incredibly detailed sort of movie yeah. that has all of that in it. That said, if you're somebody who's not interested in a movie outside of just wanting to sit down and enjoy a movie, yeah, it's probably not the movie for you. It it is a movie that kind of needs context. I think there was you know for the people at the time watching it, they had the context of the time to realize right how mind-blowing this movie really was. But even when it was released, it was a big fat flop. Right. <laughs> you know, but it, it was it it was when it was embraced by the other filmmakers of the time. Right. It, that it kind of came back. It was re-released in the 50s and it did much better then and it, it's become a movie that filmmakers have embraced because they've realized really what it is. Um uh, you found this quote and I love it. I want to read it. I don't know where you found this quote. Um but this to me kind of explains a lot of yeah i i love this this, this relationship that we're talking about right now mm-hmm. um it's one of the greatest films ever made within the context of its making you can't really compare it to modern movies because they're using tools to craft their product that didn't exist until orson welles and the crew of citizen kane invented them it's like standing isaac Newton alongside a 2008 physics grad student the grad student actually knows a whole hell of a lot more about physics than newton did but we're still impressed by Newton for originating so much. To me, that kind of encapsulates Citizen Kane really pretty perfectly, or at least in my relationship to it. Um, and I think the the one thing I would tell people, you know, if, you know, if my brother, his girlfriend, somebody's like, should I watch Citizen Kane? I'm like, well, know this. If this sounds interesting, then jump in because it is really a fascinating film to watch. It's just not terribly fun. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, it, yeah, exactly. It's, um, you know, that said, don't, don't let that put you off of it either. Because no. it, it is, it is, as long as you're willing to meet it on its own terms, it is an incredibly worthwhile sort of film. So that's kind of the flip side to yeah, it. Yeah, because, you know, it's a special effects film that you can't tell is a special effects mm-hmm. film, which is really awesome. You know, but it's not like... Oh, you've never seen Star Wars? Oh, you should totally st- you should totally watch Star Wars. Oh, you haven't seen Blade Runner? You should watch Blade Runner, and you could watch it and be like, "Wow, I've seen faster flying cars since then, but this is really cool to see how you know where the first flying car was mm-hmm. or whatever." You're not going to really see that in this. I mean, if you know what to look for, like you said, then you're going to see a lot of really cool camera tricks. You're going to see a lot of really cool lighting and compositions and some really cool stuff. But just sitting down, just just to watch it you're not going to see it. And so it's kind of, it is kind of hard to maybe get into or to appreciate really some of the genius of what's going on on screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So, um, I guess that kind of brings us to our verdict, um, which I, I think, I think, I think we've pretty, kind of I think we've kind it. of given it. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it, it's, it, it almost, it almost doesn't matter what our verdict is also. It's like, I, you know, I, for me personally, um, it, it's my wife Kelly, uh, who you've heard on the podcast before. Um, she said it really well. It's, it's a tragedy about a, a completely unlikable character, um, and so due to that, it's hard for me to be like, "Yeah, go see it. It's so good. You're going to love it so much." Uh, you might not. I don't know. Um, I don't particularly enjoy this film, um, but I would have to put it on like number one in the top 100 films of all time. It totally makes sense that it's there, and because it's there you should totally see it. You know, it, it really is a must-see film. If you're listening to this podcast because you love movies, you need to sit down and you need to watch Citizen Kane and you need to watch the documentary about how they made it and you need to do some reading because this is a really phenomenal and fascinating film. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, you know, for me, um, it, you know, I I think the expert on this film at this point is Roger Ebert. So, um, you know, he's recorded the commentary. He's done this whole thing where he's watched it with groups, you know, multiple times where they mm-hmm. sit down and watch it frame by frame and wow. dissect every frame. I mean, like, he's hardcore into this movie. And even he, in, in his audio commentary at the end of, of the whole thing, basically says, you know, this movie is on all of these top 100 lists or, you know, in top place in all of these lists. And ultimately he doesn't really believe in lists. He's like, how can you compare one movie to another movie and say that this is the greatest of all time? It's like that said for him, (laughs) well, for him, when he's asked that he has to say it because not because he necessarily thinks it's empirically better than other movies, Mm -hmm. but because it's a movie for him that he can always go back to. And there's always hidden depths to it. And there's more and more to unpack from the movie. And it's so, um, so changed the face of cinema. Yeah. I mean, and go ahead. Sorry. What I was just going to say, and and to me, that's kind of where I think I come at it from. It's, you know, I wouldn't necessarily call it the best movie to watch of all time. Right. But maybe the most important movie of all time, I think we're getting into a closer realm when you kind of consider it that way, just from what it has accomplished and yeah, it, it definitely definitely you worth see, watching. You see so many when you watch it. What what is cool? Um, mm-hmm. When you even if you don't know the camera techniques, if you don't know all that, just sit down and watch this movie and recognize that it came out in 1941. Because you'll see so many modern films in this movie. You'll see so many things. Um, this is one of the first films, if not the first, to tell the story in an unchronological order. You know, it's like it starts at the with his death. The whole movie is completely cyclical the way the story actually progresses, but it's done in this weird kind of flashback, moving forward flashback kind mm-hmm. of way. And it's like, you see that in television shows every single day now. Yeah. Lost wouldn't have existed Lost, without this. So Quentin Tarantino be, wouldn't have a yeah. career. You know, it's like, you see that. This is maybe one of the first films I've seen, or one of the earliest films that has like a specific twist ending that completely, you know, redefines the whole film after you know the ending you almost have to watch it again to completely appreciate some of the conversations and some of the scenes that take place. This movie, I don't know if the, I'm, I mean, there's always been satire and there's always been stuff like that, but this is a movie that really took aim at a particular person. And it was really daring for that. You know, and Kelly and I just last week, we watched the HBO film game change, which was took a microscope to the Palin McCain ticket of 2008. And it's like, it's hard to imagine movies like that, that can be so blatant, um, in its examination and portrayal of characters, um, it's hard to imagine movies like that existing without something like this, which is a thinly veiled examination of a particular person or character. Mm-hmm. And what's also the the thing I enjoyed the most last night watching this was how incredibly relevant <laughs> so many of the conversations are. It's like all the politicians are arguing about oil, and it's a <laughs> it's about the wealthy holding down the uh, the lower classes. You're like holy cow, this could have been made yesterday and these conversations would stay the same. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very interesting. It's uh, it's definitely... That's something that's been very fun as just as we've been doing these podcasts is how much... How many of these movies are about politics or that kind of thing? This is just a side rant, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's really hilarious how little has changed in the last hundred years based, based on the political conversations going on in the film. In the first five minutes, he's called a, a communist and a fascist. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're like, oh, so we've been calling people those 
forever. Okay, good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's, that's just fascinating to me is is how um, you know the political rhetoric changes a little bit, but it hasn't changed very much. Yeah. The, the specific issue may change, but not the uh, the name calling or really the the yeah. solutions or lack thereof. So. Or, yeah, or just even the, the 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 big general political platforms mm-hmm. and the mudslinging hasn't changed at all. It's like oh, mm-hmm. there's always been like this: the liberal side and the conservative side, and they hate each other. <laughs> yeah, but so and, I mean, it's like all of this stuff is in there, and that and that's easy stuff to see, you know. And so mm-hmm. I think there is definitely an enjoyment that can be had mm-hmm. for those little nuggets, if nothing you know, else. If, and I was going to say, if nothing else, watch it for Orson Welles' performance. Oh, he's man. amazing. I mean, yeah. I, I know I said Tour de Force earlier, but I, I really mean it. I mean, he's this is one of the great acting performances in film. I mean, this is, it's 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 amazing. Yeah, and it's actually kind of funny that we decided to record this podcast when we did, because just recently, um, the BFI, the British Film Institute, mm-hmm. they did their new kind of they did their poll of what the greatest films of all time were. And for the first time ever, Citizen Kane was dethroned by Vertigo. And that's kind of interesting. And I've posted, uh, if you go to our website, I've posted some articles already. Uh, well, not already. Once the podcast is up, you'll see them. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, when the podcast goes up, I, there's a whole, some of these things that we've referenced. Um, Roger Ebert's review of it. Gore Vidal has a really fascinating remembering Orson Welles um, article that he wrote orson wells has a really interesting article he wrote is citizen kane really about uh william randolph Hearst? and that's all going to be on the website so please go check that stuff out because they're really interesting reads and i've included like stuff from wikipedia stuff from imdb uh, spark notes <laughs> you know basically mm-hmm. all the interesting stuff that i could find that didn't overlap too much will be on the website for your consumption and i highly highly recommend uh check that stuff out because i really enjoyed reading all that stuff and watching the videos i found last night um yeah yeah well, there you go, everyone. Uh, Citizen Kane. Um, yeah. Honestly, we've only scratched the surface. Uh, you know, there's yeah. only so much you can say in an hour. And um, and I didn't mean yeah. to spring this on you, Lauren, but I think next week, I don't know where it falls on the FI Top 100, but I think we should review Vertigo next week. Why don't we do that? So that we can kind of maybe do a little compare contrast of these two movies that are vying for the best film of all time role. I think that is a good idea. So, um, yeah, next, next week. week, next week we will do Vertigo. And uh, indeed, uh, if you have thoughts on this movie, uh, let us know on our website, moviesyoushouldlove.com, on our Facebook, facebook.com slash movies you should, or on our Twitter, um, at movies you should. Because, um, I mean, this is, this is kind of the king for, you know, mm-hmm. years and years. And uh, we'd love to know what you think about it. Absolutely. So, all right. Well, until uh, until Vertigo, um, we will uh, see you next time. You've been listening to the Movies You Should Love podcast. Join in the conversation at moviesyoushouldlove.com. 